There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. In education, is smaller better? We live in a time of unprecedented customization and individualization in American society. Similarly, a new model has emerged to educate students in highly personalized environments that look nothing like traditional K-12 schools, micro schools. Sometimes called a return to the one-room schoolhouse, micro-schooling offers a customized education in intentionally small environments. The typical micro-school enrolls less than 100 students. The small size allows for teachers to better connect with students, build mutual trust, and meet individual needs. Students learn together in one classroom regardless of age differences, students drive the learning with guidance of the teacher, and blended or project-based learning is emphasized. Information about this grassroots movement is limited. Most coverage of the sector relies on anecdotes from Silicon Valley, New York City, or Boston's University Hub. In fact, the sector is so new that the term micro-school was only first used in 2010. For many, micro-schooling is the way of the future, a model that moves beyond rigid bureaucracies, distrust with change, and demeaning labor agreements. It also injects the sector with the entrepreneurial thinking and agility needed to create the thousands of little innovations needed to move the sector forward. Hello and welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. This is Brett and this is the 13th installment in this collection. It is the third episode focusing on leaving institutional schooling and finding educational alternatives. So in this second section, what I would like to do for you is to go back and forth between shows that focus more on mindset and shows that focus on practical solutions. For example, the first show in this section with Lenore Skenazy, very much a mindset show, recognizing or putting a name to this kind of frustration you've been feeling about this fear-filled environment uh, in which uh, the schooling of children exists to understand its roots and discover its uh, exits. The second show with Connor Boyack was both mindset and practical solutions, all delivered very efficiently in under an hour. Today's show is with one of my favorite guests for her range 
and depth of expertise on the subject of self-directed education. Her name is Carrie McDonald. The show you're going to hear today was from 2019. It focuses on an exciting new educational alternative called micro-schooling. We recorded this a whole four months before the pandemic began and schools were forced into the home in this weird distance learning thing that people in the mainstream media actually started to refer to as homeschooling because it was almost like they knew that this new version of Zoom school was going to be an absolute disaster. And if they could associate that disaster with people seeking educational freedom, what a win for the established order that would be. Gary and I talked about that as well early in 2020, but today we're back in 2019 talking about this micro school movement, which is really like unschooling and homeschooling generally only expanded since the pandemic started making people more and more aware of what we had been covering on school sucks since the bird flu. Was it the swine flu? Might've been the swine flu. Uh, H1N1. That's what it was. So anyway, yes, good for us. We're way ahead of our time. Blah, blah, blah. Now, before we get started today, I need to ask you for a couple of favors. First of all, our Facebook page has very, very little life in it. And one of the reasons why, in 2021, I froze the group in February. So there were some incidents in January of 2021 that are actually back in the news this week in a pretty big way. But at that point, I recognized that these platforms were probably going to up their censorship and we didn't want to rely on them for our connection anymore. So I said, I'm freezing this Facebook group and making it private and we're moving our, you know, social interaction elsewhere. That became the university community. That's where I spend most of my time today. But when I unfroze the group, it was set to private and Facebook tells me you cannot make a private group public again. So uh, that is really limiting our reach with the Facebook group. I am on Instagram. You can find me there. Just search my name, Brett Benat. I would love it if you would follow me there. You would love it if you followed me on Instagram. It's a great way to get updates about the show and uh, really my personal travels too. And any interactions that I have with animals. I live in a city, but this city is filled with animals. It's like, um, like a Disney movie. But, you know, I just walk out of my house in a city and I go, oh, hey, deer, who's just standing there like he's my neighbor. And I know it's the same deer every day. His name is Greg. So that's Instagram. That's Facebook. You can request membership in the School Sucks Facebook group, and I, I will add you there. But one of the easiest things you can do right now to help the reach of the show, and this one's a blast from the past, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or whatever you use to catch your podcasts. But iTunes is preferred in the little pie charts that our podcast host Fireside will show me. A majority of our listeners are currently coming to us from iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Oh, and look at this. Somebody already left one. It says, you're not gone after all, exclamation point. Brett, this most recent episode, bipartisan conspiracy against parents and students. Wow. It's like I just discovered you back in 2012 all over again. For what it's worth, I, one lowly listener of many, am a big fan of this pre-recorded format. Thank you. That's validating. Audio clips spliced in with your commentary in between. Golden. And that is from Zach Ack. Five stars. Thank you so much, Zach. But also, don't feel like you have to put a bunch of pressure on yourself to leave a really great review. You can leave a one-star review. Here's one from November 1st, 2010. 
to high horse. I'm all for questioning authority, but to dismantle our whole education system just to give it over to the highest bidder is not my idea of liberty. Maybe School Sucks can afford his own private police. Oh, that would be sweet right now. Sorry, I want to write that down as a goal for the next quarter. But a lot of us simple folk would be their target practice if we didn't have a system of protection by and for the people. A lot of good ideas, but way too much enthusiasm. Too much enthusiasm! Our enemies are ignorance, greed, and fear. Love, tolerance, cooperation, understanding. A strong public health, education, and welfare system with a healthy but regulated, moral-free, and taxed enterprise. That's what I'm talking about. Well, guy or gal from 2010, we'll see how that works out for you, huh? Yeah, here's somebody gave me a one-star review and says, going to give this podcast a try. How about trying it first, the stolen mirror from December 15th, 2009? Yeah, we don't have a lot. There's only like 328 ratings on a podcast that was running for over a decade. So if you could just go and do, I mean, rate, give it the stars, say, I love it, I hate it. That would be super uh, helpful as far as boosting our exposure right now. Now, of course, there's numerous other ways that you can help. I always tell you about this at the end of the show. I'll tell you right at the beginning, and, and there's a reason why I'm going to do this. I'll explain in a sec. First and the easiest, I put a link, let's say, to the book that my guest wrote. Carrie McDonald wrote a book. It's linked in the show notes. You enter Amazon through that link. You do all your shopping for the summer. That helps school sucks. The primary means of support for the show is a Patreon and it's all about the exchange. Like, are there ways to just donate money to the show? Sure. And they're linked in the show notes. But I would like to give you something. I'm all about, you say, I get value out of this. I'm going to return value. I see the value returned. I say, hey, you didn't have to do that. Only like less than 2% of everybody who listens ever does that. So thank you. Here's more value in the form of a whole bunch of additional content and access. That's how our Patreon works. So that is patreon.com slash school sucks. There's three tiers of membership. Now at the top tier, you get access to our University private community. The University was created around virtual summits that we produce. The one we did, you will hear me mention in the monologue to uh, today's conversation with Carrie, the Thanksgiving themed promotion of our Ideas Into Action Summit, recorded in 2019 and now packaged as a digital knowledge product, like a course, but not quite. It has our own School Sucks spin on it. It is a summit about how to gather information, organize information, and present information. Basically, the critical thinking process. Taking information inputs in a sensible way, processing those inputs, and then outputting that information effectively. That's what the Ideas Into Action Summit is. You might be saying, Brett, I've been listening to you since uh, mid-May 2022. I don't think you're qualified to do that. Fine, maybe I'm not. That's why I brought in some of my favorite content creators, my go-to guys on a variety of subjects. People like Scott Hambrick from Online Great Books, who you heard in the 10th episode of The Essential School Sucks, but many other great voices as well. Professors like CJ Kilmer, superstar podcasters like Tom Woods. Very successful entrepreneurs like my friend Kevin Geary, who steals the show with his presentation. Now, you'll hear me promote this, and then you'll hear me talk about like some one-day-only Thanksgiving-themed coupon code. So we have another holiday coming up, Independence Day, July 4th. Today, they call it the 4th of July. It used to be called Independence Day. 
we call it Independence Day. So from now, which is June 10th as I record this, up until July 5th, I'm going to create a coupon code, Independence, that gives you the same deal that you'll hear me mention in this monologue, 30% off. You know, it's it's a time investment. It's probably 15 to 20 hours of course material, but it's done in the same kind of conversational style we had so much success with in the podcast. So it's me basically making a curriculum and then getting these speakers one by one to deliver that curriculum start to finish to you. It's called the Ideas Into Action Summit. And there is a link to this right in the show notes, but the URL is sspuniversity, just spell that university.com slash ideas into action. I would also say that the Ideas Into Action Summit is very, very appropriate for a teen who is uh, thoughtful and sharp and up for a bit of a challenge. There might be a little like strong language here and there in some of our conversations. I can't say that it's like PG-13, but it's a really, really great product. I'm really proud of it and it has only become more relevant since we created it. And of course, when you enroll, you get lifetime access to our private Discord community all kinds of chat rooms set up around a variety of different interests. And we also do two to three, because I might be changing the schedule, uh, Zoom meetings a week, which is usually audio and video, and they're pretty open forum. The last thing I will tell you about is, speaking of teens looking for new challenges, if you are the parent of such a teen or you are such a teen yourself, please do yourself a favor and check out uh, Praxis and grab a copy of the free book, by Isaac Morehouse, the founder of Praxis, and Hannah Frankman, a graduate of Praxis. It is called Forward Tilt, and it is a collection of secrets and strategies that they've accumulated through the years of helping young people find a path around the increasingly ridiculous proposition of going to college. And they've been very, very successful doing that. So learn how they do it in this uh, guidebook. It's yours free. Click the link in the show notes, or it's also right at the top of the page at schoolsucksproject.com. Here's my conversation with Carrie McDonald. If I haven't mentioned it yet in this very long monologue, her podcast is Liberate Ed. So the word liberated, but she capitalizes the E and the D at the end. Here's a thought that I'm just going to say out loud. I would like to collaborate with Carrie again. Maybe she'd have me on as a guest. I've actually done a couple interviews already. One was on a, a show that I really enjoyed. It's hosted by Owen Hunt. It was called Blue Collar Mystics. You can catch that wherever podcasts are caught, I'm sure. It was uh, me, Owen, and my friend Daryl Becker had a, a nice conversation about The Essential School Sucks, and then we really got into some far-out topics. It was a really, really wonderful evening that the three of us spent together chatting. I also recently did a show with a man named Todd Michael, and it is called Ed Vantage. So the word advantage with an E, Ed Vantage, like education advantage. Here's a secret. If the title of your podcast is a portmanteau, I'm ready to take you seriously. So these are shows that I'm probably going to post in this feed as we go along. But right now, I just wanted to stay focused on continuing to get these episodes of The Essential School Sucks in front of your eyes and into your ears. So that might be coming up in the near future. Okay, I cannot believe how long I've gone on. This is why I usually do this part at the the end of the show. So you have the option of just saying, all right, bye. But there it all was at the beginning. So when the when the outro music plays, that's it. You know, you're free to go. You're free to go now. You might have already gone. But if you're still here, thank you so much. But this is The Essential School Sucks number 13, The Micro School Movement with Carrie McDonald, originally released in November 2019. Thanks for listening. Take care. Everybody's wasting time 
everybody. This is Brett. Welcome back to the show. Today is Tuesday, November 26th. Very pleased to be welcoming back Carrie McDonald, one of our most expert guests. It is an outrage that this is only her second appearance on the show. She first appeared in episode 504 of School Sucks, which is linked in the show notes. It is called Unenclosed Children. She is a senior education fellow at FEE and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. She also writes regularly for Forbes magazine. She's also on the board of directors of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. She also has a blog called Whole Family Learning and also the author of a brand new book, Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside of the Conventional Classroom. We're going to open our conversation today talking about that. But the rest of our conversation focuses on one of her recent contributions to Forbes. It is called How Microschool Networks Expand Learning Options. So we'll be discussing what is microschooling and why should we be talking about it? Not just with each other, because you know how we all get along really well, but also you've probably had a few conversations with people about educational alternatives. And maybe you felt or they felt like some of your examples were too vague, too easy to caricature. Wouldn't it be nice to give them something more specific, something that is being implemented, being practiced, and realizing success as an affordable alternative to traditional K-12 through public schooling? That is the microschool movement. So we'll also talk about blended learning, which is a key feature of microschooling, and we'll discuss a specific microschool network that she highlighted in her article. Carrie is such a wealth of information. I'd be happy to have her back as often as is convenient for her. So if you're following her work, either through FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, or through Forbes magazine, hit me up and let me know what you'd like us to talk about in the future. I will definitely make a note. Also, I just wanted to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving that is this week. This is the last time you're going to hear from me before Thanksgiving. I hope your day is filled with gratitude connection and kindness. Of course, if you do wind up spending the whole day arguing with family members about politics, I hope you win. I'm rooting for you. And, wait to hear this transition, if it doesn't go exactly according to plan, and you're sitting there the day after Thanksgiving, let's say, saying, oh gosh, how could I have been more prepared, more organized, more persuasive Got so many ideas that I just am having trouble, I don't know, putting into action. I have a sale I would like to tell you about. This Friday only for the general School Sucks audience, we're going to be carving 30% off the price of the downloadable version of the Ideas Into Action Summit. I know there was a lot of excitement in the School Sucks audience when we announced we would be doing virtual summits. The first one, I think, was a huge success. The feedback has been really positive so far. I'm gearing up for this encore presentation that is most likely going to happen in January. But despite all the excitement and despite all the really wonderful reviews, I understand that the two biggest obstacles are number one, price, and number two, packing so much information into a period of just three days. So this downloadable version, you don't have to stuff yourself with information. You can slowly digest this over the course of weeks. And I'm also going to provide you with this 30% off coupon code that knocks like $100 almost off the price. 
and we can get this digital downloadable still expanding. More stuff is still being added version of the Ideas into Action Summit into your hands. Go to SSBUniversity.com. University is spelled U-N-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y. University. So that is all for now. I sincerely hope you have an enjoyable and relaxing holiday filled again with peace and gratitude. But if you decide to go the other route and in the middle of dinner, you reach into the bowl of mashed potatoes, grab a fistful and fire them into the wall, creating dead silence in the dining room filled with startled family members who are now just all staring at you as you proclaim enough small talk. It's time to have a debate about why school sucks and what we can do about it. I hope today's podcast provides you with some valuable ammunition. Here is my conversation with Carrie McDonald. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and take care. Carrie, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back with you, Brett. Yes. Between now and the last time we talked, you have released a new book called Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. And it looks like, I haven't read the book yet, but it looks like it's a collection of case studies. Well, yes, it's uh, it really looks at disentangling education from schooling. And so I start with kind of the historical um, trends from uh, freedom to force in education. And now I think back to freedom. Uh, we talked about this a little bit the last time I was on about uh, the origins of compulsory mass schooling and challenging some of those myths associated with uh, the rise of compulsory schooling. So I go through a lot of the history uh, in the book. And then I talk a little bit about this philosophy of non-coercive self-directed learning, of allowing young people to pursue their interests and passions and see the, the real robust learning that comes from that when um, young people are supported by adults and have access to resources. And then you're right, I go into looking at individuals, families, organizations, and unschooling alumni who have learned without school or who are creating spaces for young people to learn without school uh, and, and looking at all of the different approaches, even within this umbrella of, or underneath this umbrella of unschooling or self-directed education, um, with particular attention paid to the many ways that these individuals, families, and organizations negotiate balancing freedom with responsibility. Oh, interesting. That's going to come up in our conversation today. Can I ask just for maybe a snapshot, was there any example or story that you used in the book that was surprising to you, might be surprising to my audience, something you discovered somebody was doing? So I'm, I would say the most surprising thing about the book was just finding the number of um, educators who left the conventional classroom, typically a public school classroom, to create these alternatives to school that were self-directed and non-coercive. Um, when you look at just the landscape of who's doing this, it tends to be these educators, these public school teachers who were really frustrated by what they were seeing in terms of increasingly standardized, coercive top-down um, schooling trends and wanted to do something different. And so that was really 
the most surprising and most uh, inspiring part of really writing the book is being able to share their stories. Mm. Uh, between our two conversations, I actually traveled all the way around the country, meeting a lot of these people and seeing alternative schools from places like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The Circle School was one that I thought was really yes. cool. And then, oh, the name escapes me, but it was in Kansas, then all the way out to California, and then all the way back through the South. And I met a lot of really interesting people, a lot of really interesting teens and even younger students and their families. Had an amazing experience with a family in New Mexico. And the United States is so big and you cover so many cultures when you travel that distance, but there was like this unifying language about what was important for all these people. Uh, and it was a really, really amazing experience. I could have shared some notes with you. We should, we should, we should have talked <laughs> we should have between now and then. But <laughs> yeah, our, yeah. So our, <laughs> our last conversation was almost two and a half years ago, and we focused it around an article that you wrote for your blog called Cultivating an Unenclosed Childhood. And we... Uh, really did it all in this conversation because we'd never spoken before. You know, we talked about your background. We talked about self-directed learning in in theory. We talked about your home education environment with each and every one of your children. We packed a lot into a, a one-hour conversation. And today, uh, we're going to be a little bit more focused on something that I haven't given enough attention to on my show. But towards the end of our last conversation... We're talking about your work with the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. Part of the project was to make alternatives more visible to people who are hungry for them, right? Mm. But they don't know what's out there. And, and all of that seems just so formless that it seems like, uh, well, there's what everybody else does, or there's this uh, really scary sort of unknown that we would have to to wander into. So giving more definition to the alternatives that exist is part of that project, and that's something that we're actually going to do today. If you're like me, you've probably had quite a few conversations with frustrated parents, right? Their frustration is about what their children are experiencing in school, but at the same time, they're not quite ready to embrace some kind of alternative or home education. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that this is the main issue. Um, I think today in the U.S., our education system is a market failure. We have uh, EdChoice just came out with the results of their uh, national survey last month of, of uh, families and education options throughout the U.S., and they found that while four out of five uh, young people in the U.S. attend an assigned district school, fewer than one-third of their parents want them there. Uh, and so there's this huge choice gap in American education with what parents want for their kids and what they have access to. And I think as we'll probably get into a little bit more today and some of the work uh, that I write about and that I'm actually working on launching is really trying to close that choice gap to really meet that unsatisfied uh, demand for parents to provide them with affordable opportunities to opt out of an assigned district school without having to fully commit to full-time homeschooling, but often use homeschooling uh, as the legal mechanism to take back control of their children's education. Right. So we're going to talk about some middle ground today, and I'm not sure I've ever even used this term on the show, micro-schooling. You wrote an article for Forbes last month. It was called How Microschool Networks Expand Learning Options. 
uh, we're going to dig into that. But just let's start with a definition. Right. So micro-schooling is a movement that has really taken hold, I would say, within just the past um, half a decade even. It's really a relatively new phenomenon. Um, It's similar to homeschooling and similar to schooling. It sort of blends the best of both of private schools um, with the kind of intimacy and personalized learning environment of homeschooling, allowing families much more flexibility and freedom to tailor um, their educational approach for each of their children. Typically, micro schools occur in or take place in, you know, homes, um, local organizations, sometimes spare rooms or basements of churches. Um, And they bring together small groups of kids, often, say, 12-ish kids into a particular group, multi-age. So it sort of recreates the often the one-room schoolhouse feel. Um, And then there there is this opportunity for really tailored curriculum. And I think we'll get into some of the different models. But sometimes or often these models will use technology as a platform to provide some kind of tailored, personalized education. But it's not a tech driven or an online education fully, you know, technology is just supporting that overall education process. So beyond that, there aren't any real guidelines. Like if you think about something like Sudbury, like a Sudbury school has to conform to a certain set of attributes. Micro schooling can be more open-ended. I mean, we have some common attributes like class sizes are usually fairly small. The groups are mixed age. There's really flexible scheduling. Is there is there anything else that's really defining of a, a micro school environment? I would just say it depends on the micro school network that we're talking about, and often even within a micro school network, it depends on whether or not an individual micro school is a hybrid homeschooling model where the parents are registering as homeschoolers and then have complete flexibility and freedom because of that designation. Or if the micro school is a registered school, is a licensed school in a given uh, location or state, um, which in some cases may, you know, have a, have a bit more uh, oversight or regulatory requirements. So that that just depends on how the micro school is established. Oh, sure. I bet the state that it's in would be hugely influential in how it works or how it can work. What was your first encounter with micro schooling? Yeah, it was probably um, Acton Academy, which is a growing network of microschools started by Jeff and Laura Sandifer in Austin, Texas, and now is expanding into many states to really activate individual parents who want to launch a microschool in their home or in their community. Again, replicating this one-room schoolhouse feel. Um, with affordable price tags that are typically a fraction of the cost of other available private school options. And the Acton Academy model, similar to Prenda Learning, which I think we'll also talk about in this discussion, they use a proprietary curriculum approach, often a software approach, uh, that facilitates that education, but that doesn't dictate the learning. Okay. So you also do a lot of work on ed policy. And I said just within the last couple of minutes... Obviously, it still does matter what state you're in, but a great deal of educational policy today is made on the federal level. Do you see a warmth generally towards the micro school option in policy discussions or policy developments? Yeah, I mean, I think we're lucky that that education policy is still very state 
funded and state focused if there if there's any kind of silver lining i mean sort of sort of federal spending on education is less than 10% of the overall uh, K to 12 spend. So mo most of it's happening at the state and local level. Um, but the overall price tag, of course, is $700 billion a year. So it's a huge amount of money. And I think what we're seeing from a policy perspective is an increasing warming up to this idea of education choice mechanisms. So you find in, in, in particular in states like Florida and Ohio and Wisconsin and Arizona, um, just really robust education choice mechanisms. And in some of these cases, particularly in Arizona, where the Prenda Microschool is, again, another one of these fast-growing microschool networks, um, many of the families that are participating in the Prenda Microschool network are taking advantage of some of these education choice mechanisms, whether it's tax credit scholarship programs or education savings accounts that allow families access to funding, to public funding, some of their tax dollars back uh, to be able to use as they wish. And so I see, uh, specifically focused on the micro-school movement, I see real opportunity um, for parents to be able to access funds uh, to make this an even more affordable option. And again, many, many cases, these microschools are already a third to a half the cost of a, of a traditional private school option in a given state. And if families have access to these education choice mechanism, that, that brings the cost down even further. Excellent. Yeah. It, it seemed like $10,000 a year seemed to be like the top end of cost that's right. I, I would say that's probably true. I think it, there'll be some variations depending on geographic areas. Um, the Prenda Microschool Network, which again is this fast-growing network right now in Arizona, but looking to expand out of state, is about $5,000 per child per year. And let's actually talk a little bit about advantages and disadvantages that people might want to consider of a model like this. First of all, like what do you, what do you think of this model like from a pedagogy standpoint? How would a person be able or a family be able to look at this and say, yeah, this is right for me or this is not right for me? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, disillusionment with this one-size-fits-all mass schooling model. Uh, I think families are looking for options or looking for alternatives. There's increasing frustration with just having limited choices when it comes comes to a child's education. So the micro-school movement really is exciting because it's showing the possibility to diversify um, different educational approaches. And I think that as these micro-school networks grow and as more begin to emerge, families will have increasing access to all kinds of different approaches. So maybe you don't like one particular uh, pedagogical approach or you don't like one particular curriculum that a certain micro-school network is using. There'll be another one hopefully popping up soon that would be more focused on, on what your child or your family needs. But I think the overall goal of microschooling is a much more tailored, personalized approach so that there may be differences in terms of curriculum or approach or philosophy in each of these microschools. But they're kind of the overriding principle is this idea that we're going to target learning to individual learner needs, often kind of passion-driven learning, really trying to spark curiosity and creativity in a way that's the opposite of what often often happens in mass schooling, which of course is to crush creativity, focus on conformity. And I think micro schools are really trying to encourage individuality, creativity, and passion. Right. And I would assume, just back to the pedagogy, that they would all be utilizing some form of uh, like a blended learning model, which if anyone's unfamiliar with that term, it's just a combining online education with 
actual interaction either with other students or both with other students and with some kind of instructor. I guess at this point, everything, education or school, is blended learning to some extent. But I'm just thinking because we're not following a traditional uh, schedule and there's probably, in most cases, more limited resources with personnel, it's going to lean more heavily even than you know traditional K through 12 school on like a blended learning approach. Yes. So I think you're seeing a blend of technology and sort of technical resources with these micro schools as well as in-person learning. Um, but typically, at least in the more prominent micro schools, they are using technology as a platform. So for example, they might bring in Khan Academy for teaching math um, to a group of young people, but they're not focusing their entire day on um, online learning. So the kind of blended approach that you're talking about, blended learning, really is this blend or this mix of uh, online learning and in-person learning. And I think micro schools are doing an excellent job of combining those two things. I would also just zoom in a little bit on blended learning. Uh, there's lots of different forms. There's lots of different ways blended learning can work. In your research on micro schools, did you discover any particular approach that was promising or innovative that you hadn't seen before? No, I think it's just interesting to see the different ways that micro schools are using um, currently available technology. So if you look at much of the growth in ed tech are these sort of off-the-shelf software packages. Like this particular package will revolutionize math education or this particular package will uh, make your young person a fantastic writer and that sort of thing. And I think that what's interesting with these micro schools is they're able to sort of wade through a lot of that marketing um, to figure out what works for their young people uh, in their programs and also not be really wedded to one thing. So there's a real uh, air of experimentation and a desire to try new things. And, and if a specific software program, for example, might work for one child or one group of children, it might not work for everybody. So there's a real sense of agility and responsiveness, I think, with these micro schools. Yeah, I think there'd be lots of opportunities for students as well to develop a, a kind of information literacy. There's one category of blended learning that is usually referred to as like self-blending, where maybe there's um, you know instructional oversight where uh, a general curriculum is created, like with goals, and then students actually go out and they discover the online resources that are going to help them achieve those goals. And that was a model that I thought was um, particularly interesting, just contrasted to the experience that I had so often as both a teacher and a tutor where students were kind of encouraged to go out and explore online, but they were doing so very much in a corral that school policy or teacher policy had created. So it was almost like they weren't being given any trust, right? Or there was no faith right. put in their abilities. You know, Wikipedia comes to, uh, like, the, Wikipedia was like a forbidden site. Uh, for for kids. And I said, this is like one of the greatest sites for teaching information literacy that there is. It's like training wheels for information literacy. It'll tell you if something is wrong with the article. But yeah, so kids sent off to do online research, but not really sent off to do online research. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you've really nailed it, right? I mean, technology today is transformative. We see it in our own lives and how much it facilitates our own adult learning. And if we we need to learn something new or try something new or fix something that broke in our house, you know, we go to YouTube. I mean, we see the ways in which technology can really be this incredible platform for accessing information and knowledge and gaining new skills. And I think it's important to recognize that that's equally true for young people. We just also want to make sure that, you know, it's not completely online, that we do not lose that human connection with education. Um, that's particularly important, I think, for younger children, where they have this sort of humanity, right? There's this, this expectation that you're learning with and from people and not just staring at a screen all day. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say one of the oldest and most worn out things that people are saying right now, but technology, double-edged sword, you know, and I, you know, you talk about that, like obviously in the article, uh, you talk about the potential technology has to decentralize and really even revolutionize the K through 12 experience, but technology can't do that by itself, right? It requires adults who are invested, people and environments that foster curiosity, but still, I've been in these kinds of environments where there was all this talk, but kids would still wind up drowning into these screens in what I observed as some really unhealthy and unproductive ways. So what do you see as the role of a facilitator in an environment like this? Because people our age, we were like slowly acclimated to all of this technological development over the course of a couple decades. These kids have never known anything else. But because it's kind of new for us too, it's been hard for our generation to teach them technological safety and literacy. And I know that there's lots of parents out there and lots of educators, I was one, who are often confused and sometimes quite flustered by this question of how to mediate a young person's relationship with technology, understanding that there are tremendous benefits to it, but also considerable risks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you use the term double-edged sword, right? Because technology often leads to fears and concerns in society. And at least initially, whenever there's a technological innovation, it can um, shake people up a little bit and make people wonder, you know, what the future has in store. It's really anxiety inducing. And one of my favorite parts in my unschooled book is where I talk about this journalist uh, who was responding to a new piece of technology and he said, this will turn us into nothing but transparent heaps of jelly to one another. Uh, and he was talking about the telephone. <laughs> and I think that it's just something important to remember that anytime there's new technology, and particularly the sort of technological revolution that we've had over just the past couple of decades, um, it can, you know, disorient us initially, particularly those of us who, you know, experience the analog world and now experience the digital world. And I think it's the first step is just to recognize that, you know, some of that might be our own um, coming to terms with this new technology. And, and you're right that young people today don't have those same hangups because um, they're coming into a world that's always been digitally enabled and are much more comfortable with that. So I think it's, it's right. It's, it's we as adults should just be supporting them and encouraging them not sort of prohibiting technology, because I think that that can backfire on us. But I think, you know, to your larger point, one of the things the micro schools do, um, and why I think 
it's really interesting to see how they're negotiating um, this balance between technology and in-person instruction is because it's more um, focused on parent empowerment, because parents are the ones in charge of really determining how and where their children are educated and often have a greater say in the um, curriculum and approach of these micro schools, there's much more accountability because of that versus, you know, some of these technology trends that you see uh, in the public schools where parents are completely disconnected from this. Uh, Even teachers are often completely disconnected from this. And there's just sort of this new technology or new new software program that's being introduced into a district or into a particular school or classroom. Uh, and there's less of that accountability, less of that opportunity to customize. So I really think, again, this micro school movement and the larger hybrid homeschooling movement puts parents back in the driver's seat and offers that accountability and transparency. Yeah. Just a side note to your telephone comment. I was, re- <laughs> I was recently reading something by Napoleon Hill. He was saying, today we have all the information in the world at our fingertips. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that's a relatable statement about the age in which we live. And I'm like, wait a minute, this guy was writing in the 20s and he's talking about the radio, right? He's talking about AM radio, puts uh, all of the world's information in people's fingertips. But uh, I think the advantage in the microschooling movement is obviously, you know, technology is going to be embraced public schools, private schools, higher education, technology, technology. I mean, you know, we've been hearing about this since, you know, I was in high school. With micro schools, it can be more focused, right? You have a better chance of taking adults who are experts, right, in a specific technological discipline, and they're doing the guidance for the students who are interested in learning about that discipline, Kind of, it, it takes us to one of your the specific example uh, from this article with Prenda, right? Where this this guy was just setting up coding schools um, mm. or meeting kids in in libraries. So, if a micro school is focused on a specific outcome or even like a niche uh, discipline, I think that is a a better kind of. I, I hate to use the word protection, but that's a better setup to learn about technology. If you have somebody who is expert in a certain kind of technology, and that's what they're teaching in the school environment. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, again, I think these micro schools that I'm most familiar with are not, they're not relying um, fully on these technologies. They really are using it in a balanced way. And the technology, you know, they, again, may use Khan Academy or Mystery Science or, or different programs here and there to supplement a child's learning in a particular area. But there's really a much more, uh, much broader focus on, I think, collaborative learning, project-based learning, that kind of peer interaction and building relationships with adult mentors. It's just, uh, I think it's a really great demonstration of, the, of how you can have both technology and in-person learning uh, in ways that really augment learning. And I'll just add, I, I loved your Napoleon Hill um, comment. In fact, uh, in my unschooled book, I talk about the former Google CEO, Eric Schmidt, who explained that every two days we create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization up until 2003. (laughs) So every two days, uh, this is is the amount of information that's being created. And so we need technology. We need to embrace technology and we need to encourage our children to do that as well. I think it's just not making sure we're not losing sight of that human connection. Absolutely. Can I ask how that's that's worked in your home? You have four children, and your oldest is a teenager. 
She is. Yeah, yeah. she's 13. Mm-hmm. And this was something that was actually absent from our last conversation, this whole discussion of technology. Uh, like I said, I see some kids using it in what I think are unhealthy ways. You, know, you have a home education environment. What's your general guidance like on screen time? Yeah. I mean, so in my unschooled book, I talk about making sure parents are empowered, making sure they recognize, you know, how their children respond to technology in the same way that how their children respond to sugar, right? Particularly when your kids are young. Um, You know, I think a lot of parents see, gosh, if if my kid eats an entire candy bar, he's jumping off the walls. And they might say the same thing about, you know, too much screen time. And so I think it's really important for parents to feel um, like they have the the capacity to sort of limit, to focus on their children's well-being if they're seeing that technology is playing an outplaced role in their children's lives. And I think, but I think another piece of that is often when we see or, or parents complain about technology obsessions or overuse of screen time or their kids always being playing video games. Um, sometimes it's because those are kids that have spent most of their day in school. Um, being kind of controlled by others and having very little freedom and very little autonomy. And then they often go to after-school programs or extracurriculars where, again, every minute is structured and supervised by adults, uh, which is, again, a big sea change even since I was a kid when you know our afternoons were often really wide open and free and we got to play outside with our neighborhood kids and there weren't adults around. Um, and that's really gone away. And so if you think about it, when you have that kind of scheduling and supervision and control of your day, you're only, you know, you'll, you'll be seeking those moments where you have complete control of your surroundings like you do with technology. So it's not unusual or um, surprising that young people would retreat into a video game world or a technology world, right? Because uh, it's, they're really their only opportunity for autonomy and control. And yet, if we can think about giving them more of that autonomy and control in the rest of their lives, we may find that technology plays less of a role uh, in their world and certainly less of an obsession for them. And I think I found that to be the case with my kids as well. I mean, when they were really little, um, you know, we'd limit some screen time because I think many, many of your listeners, if they have, you know, three, four or five year olds, that kind of thing, they'll, they'll say, oh, my kids would just sit and watch TV all day sure. or watch cartoons all day. Uh, and, so, and so, you know, parents should feel like they have the authority to turn off the TV or move them on to some other kind of opportunity. Um, and I think, though, that as you see, if, if you, as kids get older, and you kind of talk about technology with them and allow them to, um, to grow into technology rather than having it be prohibited. It's a really important feature. In fact, I'm blanking on this uh, recent book by a a college professor. I'll try to get the name of it for you for the show notes. Um, But he talked uh, about this as well, just sort of parents' unfounded fears around technology. And he says, you know, if if you're waiting to give your kids a phone until they're a teenager or give them real technology access until their adolescent ages, you have a real missed opportunity. Whereas when they're, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, they'll often listen to you more, right? You have a little bit more influence over them in those ages and can talk about technology and some of the dangers or some of the, you know, problems with overuse and that and um, and other potential hazards and they'll listen to you. <laughs> so it's better to sort of introduce technology to kids in those earlier ages, rather than waiting and kind of prohibiting their um, immersion 
this technology until they're a teenager when you might have less control and less influence over how they might use it and what they might find. Absolutely. And and modeling healthy behavior, you know, I guess that's up to everybody given their situation to decide what that is with those screens um, from a much earlier age. And I think another good point that you made there was it's an entirely different conversation, whether you're talking about, you know, home educated people or people who go to school, because I think the immersion in things like video games, I know Peter Gray and I had this conversation a while back, is an attempt at a healthy response to an unhealthy environment, right? It's about seeking autonomy when your entire day, you're basically robbed of it. But Unfortunately, you know, one of the things that concerns me about it, especially with kids who go to public school, and I think maybe I just kind of project a lot of those concerns onto, you know, kids and screens generally, is that school teaches dependence. A lot of these these devices and the things on these devices are, even though I don't like to use the word addictive, right? I feel like it's not an empowering word, but it has those kinds of features. Mm -hmm. So if a kid spends... 35 hours a week learning dependence, even if those lessons aren't explicit, and then is, uh, you know, filling the rest of his or her time with devices that are very easy to become dependent uh, upon. That's my concern there. But yeah, it's an entirely different dynamic when you're talking about kids who who never have that training and are, are never in those compulsory environments. Right. And I, and I was able to find the name of that professor. So the, his book is called The New Childhood, and it's by Jordan Shapiro, who's a, a Temple University professor, uh, who talks again about the, the value of introducing technology and kind of discovering technology with your children at earlier ages, rather than kind of sending them off with technology in their teen years. So uh, it's the new childhood, raising kids to thrive in a connected world. It's highly recommend. Excellent. So let's talk about a, a specific example that you did some research on uh, of a micro school called Prenda, which we've mentioned a couple of times. Could you just share that story with uh, my audience? Because I was unfamiliar with it. I'm guessing a lot of people are unfamiliar with it. And I was really surprised to learn how fast they had grown from these very humble origins, maybe just like five or six years ago, uh, doing little coding camps. To where they are now. Right. Yeah. So Prenda is doing such amazing things. Uh, it was founded by Kelly Smith, who is an MIT graduate who sold his software company in 2013 and then started these after school coding clubs in libraries. And that, that whole um, club network rapidly expanded. And, and I think it was in 30 states. Um, and he began to think, and he had a, a eight-year-old son at the time, and began to think, you know, why isn't school like these coding camps? You know, when I when I interviewed him, he said, I would have these kids who would complain about hating school or how much how terrible they were at math, and then they would just bound into the library full of excitement and energy for these co- for this, these coding camps and these coding workshops 
where he said they were doing mathematical concepts and other kinds of projects that were much more intense and sophisticated and rigorous than anything they would be doing in their math class. Um, so it really made him start to think about how could he make school more like his coding clubs, where you have young people really excited and enthusiastic about learning. Uh, and that's where the idea sprouted for Prenda, which is this network of microschools. He started it uh, for his own son and a few other kids in his living room in January of 2018. And now here we are just, what, an, a year and a half later, and there are 80 microschools uh, reaching over 500 students throughout Arizona uh, in all kinds of different places, in homes, in organizations. One of the really exciting Prenda schools, Prenda microschools uh, that I talk about in the Forbes article is the Prenda San Carlos School, which yeah. is on the San Carlos Apache Indian Reservation in Arizona. And that Apache Reservation has terrible academic outcomes. Their public schools are all receiving F ratings by the Arizona Department of Education. Parents are really... Um, frustrated. They don't have choices. Many of them consider leaving the reservation because they're just so frustrated with the limited options they have for their children's education. And, and here, you know, Prenda became this opportunity for um, one of these reservation members to launch a micro school there uh, in some rented church space on the, uh, it's a secular school, but in rented church space on the reservation, that's now a real alternative to school for a lot of these families. And so there's just so many exciting things happening there. Uh, Prenda's trying to expand beyond Arizona, but one of the, I think one of the real reasons why they've been able to experience such rapid growth in Arizona in particular is because of Arizona's robust climate for education choice, particularly right. their tax credit scholarships and their education savings accounts. And for example, their education savings accounts, which I think they call empowerment accounts, those are um, young children or children that are members of um, Native American reservations or have access to those funds as well. So that's, I think, where we're also seeing some growth in Arizona uh, with Prenda and some of these other micro schools. So when you talk to Kelly Smith, somebody who's gone through school this way, you said he was an MIT graduate, right? Yeah. You know, so I think about the march through K through 12 and then the lower levels of education and then all the way to graduating from MIT must have been quite an interesting revelation for somebody like that to discover there was an entirely different way education could work. And I don't know if any of that came through in your interview. Yeah, like, wow. it did. It did. I mean, I think, he, you know, what he what he recollected to me was that even at MIT, you know, he began to kind of question the the, the education that he'd received and realized, you know, where where his passions were and where uh, when he was really engaged in content, that was where most of the learning came. So I, I think it, the the seeds started to be planted at that point. And then when he really launched these after school coding clubs, he just saw the potential um, to expand that model, to scale that model, to reach many more young people. And of course, where it is only $5,000 a year per child right now in Arizona, I mean, that's not going to be um, affordable for everyone, but it's certainly more affordable for many more families. And then if you add in these education choice mechanisms, it, the costs go down even further. How did he expand? Like, was it just word of mouth? How did he grow so fast? You said there were 80 schools in the state. 
Yeah. I mean, I think some of it's word of mouth. He's hired a team. So I think there's, you know, certainly some marketing going on there as well. Um, You know, he said that, interestingly, a lot of the parents who are interested in Prenda are not parents who were homeschooling their kids. You know, they may have been intrigued by homeschooling, but it was never really something that they seriously considered. Uh, But then Prenda provided, again, this, this bridge, right, where where you become a registered homeschooler, but you are in some cases, in some cases not, depends on the on the school that you're that you're working with, the Prenda micro school that you're working with. Um, some are homeschoolers, some are part of their charter school network that offers like distance learning opportunities and so on. Um, but there are families that were interested in more of these hybrid models, home-based kinds of models, because uh, most of them are happening in people's homes. Uh, there is the one on the reservation that's happening in a church, but for the most part, they're happening in homes. And so I think that these were just families looking for something different for their children and were intrigued by this new model. Did you get to talk to any of the families? No, I just talked to the the people who are running the different schools, the different micro schools. Yeah. What do you think the transition needs to look like? Like we started out our conversation talking about, you know, all these people that we've interacted with through the years who are frustrated and don't know what to do. So has there been like a process laid out? I'm I'm sure it varies a little bit from state to state of how you transition from like full-time public school into a micro school setting like this, whether it's Prenda or something else. Yeah. So again, I mean, so homeschooling is legal in all 50 states. uh, And some of these micro schools operate on that homeschooling mechanism. So you are able to pull your children from school or not enroll them in the first place and be a homeschooler and then take advantage of some of these micro schools as a homeschooler. And that's the case with Prenda. But you also have the ability to, at least in Prenda's case, also, you know, have access to through a virtual charter school in the state and some of these other options. So it's really state specific. But what I'm finding to be um, what I think is a real hopeful sign is that these hybrid homeschooling programs, these micro schools are really expanding options for families and kind of breaking down the um, the binary of school versus homeschool. So right. full-time homeschooling can be really overwhelming and, and often impossible for many families. And these hybrid options uh, are opening up a lot of possibilities. One other hybrid homeschool model, particularly, which sort of operates like a micro school, so I think it's relevant for our conversation, is the Da Vinci Charter Network in California. And that's an interesting model because it's a public charter school, so it's free to the user, uh, free to the family. Um, they can enroll, it's, this is in uh, Los Angeles County, they can uh, enroll their young people in this charter school. The children attend a project-based school two days a week, so they're actually on site with their teachers. And then the remaining three days, they're homeschooling or they're taking other classes throughout the community. Um, But it's a true hybrid model. And because it's free to the consumer, free to the family, uh, is more accessible. They have a long waiting list. Um, And where it's a charter school, for better or worse, they, the families do need to comply with state regulations and certain curriculum directives. 
um, in exchange for those for that access to those funds and the instruction and, and the teaching and all of that. But but that's another example where we're kind of blurring the lines between homeschooling and schooling. And I think we're going to see increasingly more of that and more affordable options for more families. Yeah, and it's really encouraging to see this coalescing into a movement, especially for those of us who spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people about the possibility for something outside of the public schools. And we've given, you know, certainly isolated examples like uh, I mentioned the Circle School. Do you ever come across uh, Big Fish up in New Hampshire? Yes, I've written about them as well, right? Yeah. A self-directed learning center in Dover, New Hampshire. Yeah. Right. Yep. So I've uh, interviewed their director. I don't think I ever got to visit the school, but that's kind of an example. And I think we were we were talking about that like three or four years ago. But like I already said, the movement helps bring this idea more into focus. It gives it definition. It makes it easier to transport to other people. So who else is working to project this into public consciousness, right? We talked about the work that the um, Alliance for Self-Directed Education does, but what is the project as far as getting this word out there to more people? Well, I think it's really new. Like yeah. I said, microschooling is is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, you know, certainly on my Forbes column, I write about these innovative K to twelve learning models that take place outside of a conventional classroom. So. I'm trying to spotlight a lot of these hybrid models and these micro schools, but I think it's just, it's just new. And so anytime, you know, we have something new, it'll take a little bit of time to get the word out uh, and explain the possibilities. One of the things I think though is really uh, promising is, you know, you mentioned Big Fish and and the work of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, which focuses on promoting a lot of these self-directed learning centers that, you know, have that particular educational philosophy. And certainly those are the the centers and schools that I highlight in my unschooled book. But what I think is really promising with the larger microschool movement now is that it's it's diversifying, right? So that, that increasingly parents are going to be able to find an educational approach for their kids that's right for them, that's right for their child, that's right for their family. So that it's not going to be um, limited micro school choices, you're really going to have a wide variety of different approaches and philosophies to choose from. Yeah, pretty soon people will be able to approach education for their children with the same variety and discernment uh, as a, you know, breakfast cereal for their children. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I mean, that's the larger point, right? We have so many choices in every other part of our lives. Exactly. And yet for some reason, education has such limited choices. And I think families, parents, are, and educators are really waking up to this and yeah. saying, this is just unacceptable. It's just um, completely um, misaligned with the rest of our lives. And we deserve and need more and better choices. And final question, that what goes with that is a shocking to us, but very widespread and very reluctant acceptance of that for just too long, right? Like no one's happy about it. But my observation is most people are just very unmotivated to address it in like school board meetings, PTA meetings, blah, blah, blah. But despite like a really high level of public frustration, there also seems to be a proportional amount of apathy when it comes to the question of actual workable alternatives. Do you think for a lot of parents it's as simple as I don't want to ask these difficult questions because I don't like the answers that might come, whether I'm talking about what it meant for me in my life or what it means in my child's life. Everybody else does it. It's good enough. 
end of investigation? I think that apathy certainly exists, but I think it's growing increasingly less and less, right? Because Good, I think yeah. what's happening now, our parents are waking up to this idea, like we just said, that that we deserve more options. This one size fits all model isn't working for my child and, and I shouldn't have uh, so few choices. So I think the apathy is dwindling. And what's really the issue now is not apathy, it's access. So if we can make these micro schools affordable for families, for more families, either by making them a fraction of the cost of other available private school options, or by activating these education um, choice mechanisms, I think we'll see more and more families flocking to these alternatives. Absolutely. So my uh, friend Richard Grove in this online summit that I did recently, he said, marketing is the educating of the public to want what they need, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the most effective ways to do that is to show them actual examples of the things they need. I think for too long, there was like a revolution waiting to happen against compulsory schooling and even many aspects of higher education. But what the alternatives were, were just too easily derided, like, oh, some hippie school right? <laughs> or, or some isolated child uh, of some deeply religious family being uh, drilled in the kitchen at the table instead of in a classroom. There were just those caricatures of what the alternatives were. But as more of these things come into focus, the more people are going to be able to see and even experience from afar at first the things they actually need, you know, or their children actually yeah. need. Yeah, I mean, that's where I, I just have so much faith in entrepreneurs to build these models, to activate these opportunities for families, to expand choices. Uh, I think we'll see increasingly that we have these educational entrepreneurs who are going to be the ones that are going to lead the, the way in expanding education options for more families. Awesome. So if people want to see uh, more of your writing on the subject of self-directed education. You write for Forbes. Does that column have a name? Um, yeah. If you Google Forbes and my name, Carrie mm -hmm. McDonald, my, my column will come up. You can see my articles there. You can also visit my website at fee.org slash Carrie. That's the Foundation for Economic Education. Um, you can see links to my social media accounts there. Send me an email and see um, many of my articles as well. You still have your blog up, right? You're you know, writing I elsewhere. Do. I <laughs> I, I don't uh, tend to it the way I used to, but that's uh, wholefamilylearning.com. And you, again, can link to some other uh, ways to reach me there. Okay. And you've got lots of archives to articles there, correct? That's right. That's right. Yes. Awesome. Uh, well, Carrie, thanks for another great conversation. I look forward to doing it in the near future. We shouldn't wait two and a half years again. I would love that. Thanks, Brett.